All right. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 18 today. So if you've got a Bible, please open it to the 18th chapter of Matthew. It's on page 823 if you're in a pew Bible. To recap where, we're, where we've been, we're doing this short series on this idea of church discipline. And we've looked at um, big picture ideas of the, the difference between formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative discipline being like that stake that holds the tree so it can grow straight. In the wind, corrective discipline being more the idea of you have gone in the wrong direction and God turns you back, like a parent punishes a child, turns them back, corrects them. And uh, God does both of these things in our lives, and he does it primarily because he loves us. That was really the main point of the first week. If God loves you, he will discipline you. God loves you, he will discipline you. The rest of the series really is looking at how God does that for us through each other. God uses his people to discipline us formatively, push in the right direction, and correctively turn us from the wrong direction, put us back in the right direction. And we're looking at how this requires a determined love. It requires an intentional, on-purpose tenacious, persevering love for each other, and that is a beautiful thing when it happens in the church. We started through the Matthew 18 passage last week. We're going to continue on this week, and we're going to finish it next week. Last week, we made it through just the first verse, which said this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And one thing that we wanted to make sure we understood last week was that this is actually talking about something larger than just someone who's sinned directly against you, because we talked about how you can be sinned directly against and you can be sinned indirectly against because we as a body, a church body, we are connected to each other. We looked at how the Apostle Paul clearly says this in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are connected to each other. As Americans, we tend to be individualistic. We want to live our lives on our own, our own little silo, and yet what we see in the New Testament is the church living together as a community, needing each other, serving each other, loving each other, helping each other, and correcting each other. So this morning, we've got some members of our body here serving the Yakis family while we're here worshiping and learning together. That's how the body is supposed to work together. That's the positive side of it. The negative side of it is if one part of the body is unhealthy, if it's damaged, if it's hurt, then it affects the whole body. If I came to you and I chopped off one of your limbs, I know, a little violent, that would not only be a, a sin against that limb, it would be a sin against all of you, right? Your whole body would be affected by it. And it's not like your other limbs would say, it's no big deal, it's not us. We're all connected. We saw this last week that there are horizontal and vertical sins. We tend to think of sin only in a vertical sense. We sin against God, right? But we sin against each other too. And we saw that the reality is that every horizontal sin is also a vertical sin. 
Because if I sin against you, say, by lying to you, not only have I sinned against you who are made in the image of God, but I have disobeyed God who told me not to lie. So every horizontal sin also is a vertical sin. And then finally, we got to the the main point of this idea of church discipline. The goal of church discipline is restoration. It is not punishment. It is not vengeance. It is love. It is grace. It is forgiveness. It is reconciliation. It's hard work, but the possibility of it is worth the hard work. So we're going to look now at our our whole six verses here in Matthew 18, and we're going to go through the next couple, and we'll finish it out next week. So here's the whole passage, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Remember, this is Jesus himself speaking. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them in my Father, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Arguably, the most confusing part of that is that second half, which we're going to deal with next week. But we're going to deal with the middle part today. But first, I want to introduce you to an interesting resource, interesting in quotes. This is a book that I recently picked up. It's called The Positive Bible. I got it as a used copy. It says, from Genesis to Revelation, scriptures that inspire, nurture, and heal. And uh, basically, the guy who wrote this, this is probably 30 years old now, the guy who wrote this um, was a big proponent of the idea of the power of positive thinking, that if you think positive thoughts, positive outcomes will come in your life. And so when he read the Bible, he saw all those negative things in the Bible, he said, I don't like that. I don't want to read that. I don't want to think that. This is going to bring negative outcomes in my life. So he just took out all of the negative stuff in the Bible. It's kind of like Thomas Jefferson, who didn't believe in miracles or in the supernatural. So he edited the Bible, actually cut it out with scissors, all the parts that referenced the miraculous or supernatural. He ended up with a a natural account from what was left of the Bible. So the positive Bible... Although it looks thick like a regular Bible, actually most of the, most of the pages are, are pretty sparse. Um, there's a lot of blank space in here, as you might expect. And if you turn to Matthew 18, we have uh, none of the first part of our passage. So none of the, if your brother sins against you and go and confront him and take some witnesses and tell it to the church and the tax collectors and the Gentiles and everything. He just picks up on the, the positive part at the end about the, you know, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And if you agree together, then God will give you whatever he asks or whatever you ask from him. And where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, this is, this is that verse that I just read right here. This is the end of Matthew, 10 chapters later. Okay. So, as good as it sounds, like, man, you could open this and you could be encouraged by any page in here. He has had to remove the betrayal, the arrest, the beating, the trial, the, 
crucifixion of Jesus entirely because it's not positive. Is the whole Bible the Word of God, or just parts of it, just the parts that we like, just the parts that are easy to follow, or is it, is it all of it? Say it's all of it. And the reason we're going through Matthew 18 right now is because unless we intentionally say we're going to deal with this, this hard to understand and maybe even harder to uh, live out passage, we would, we would just naturally choose to skip over it like this guy skipped over so many things. But I got to tell you, as I was going through this, uh, this, this happens over again. I shouldn't be surprised. The weeks that I'm most like nervous, anxious, like how am I, how am I going to possibly present this to the congregation? How am I, how am I going to do it in a way that, that draws them towards Christ instead of let's push them away? This is one of those negative, hard passages, and yet I was just floored, and I can't wait to share with you guys the beauty of the gospel of Jesus that is in these verses that we're going to look at. So if you want to borrow my copy of the Positive Bible, you're welcome to. I will say that it came used, and it came with a receipt. This was purchased at a Walden Books in the year 2000. Anybody want to guess which day of the year this book was purchased? April Fool's Day. April Fool's Day. It's good. All right. So, <clears throat> Matthew 18. We'll read the first part again, and then we'll get to the second part. And I hope that what you will find is, even though these are a difficult thing to deal with, that this will be a cold drink of water on a hot summer day. That for your soul that's yearning for God to care about the details of your life, that this will be refreshing to you. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So last week we made a lot of statements about that first step. If someone has sinned against you, if you see a brother sinning, you go, you confront them, challenge them alone. So you're not gossiping about it. You're not um, sharing it with a bunch of other people as a prayer request. You're, just, you're going right to that person. You're dealing with it one-on-one. A lot of times, well, sometimes that works. The person says, thank you. Jesus has been working on my heart. I receive your correction, and I am going to repent. I'm going to turn around and go the other way. And the person that I wronged, I'm going to go talk to them, confess, and ask their forgiveness. I'm going to do what I need to do in order to make it right. Sometimes that works. But what if it doesn't? What do we do then? Well, Jesus says that we are to take one or two others along with us. He calls these people witnesses. What are they witnessing to? Well, their job is twofold. They are to join with that original person in confronting and calling that person to repentance, pleading with them, saying, you are rebelling against God. You are harming your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are whatever the situation is. Please turn around. Please come back into fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. Maybe they hear that. You know, there's this, this 
holy peer pressure happening. If, if one person comes to you, it's easy to write them off and say, I'm just going to ignore that person. But now he comes back with reinforcements with two or three. He says, they're saying the same thing. Please turn around. You're, you're headed off the cliff. Stop. Go the other direction. Maybe with that holy ganging up, you will hear and turn around. But maybe you won't. Maybe that second stage won't do any good. Well, then those one or two or three, those are witnesses now against the guilty person. This goes back to Deuteronomy where God says you you can't convict anybody in the nation of Israel just on one witness. You always got to have two or three witnesses to attest to the guilt of the person. And so these witnesses can then say, yes, we know that this person has been stubbornly sinning in this particular direction, refuses to turn around, and, and Bob went and talked to him, and he, he wouldn't hear him, so Bob took us, and he wouldn't hear us. He refuses to turn around, and we stand as witnesses to that. To make this real, let's, let's do this as a hypothetical case study. So there's a, there's a married couple in your church. We'll call them Philip and Rhonda. You're friends with them. You, uh, you're in a, a small group, an outpost together, and you've shared some great times of fellowship together. You've laughed together. You've prayed together. You've cried together. You've studied the Bible together. And you've helped each other through some tough times. And this Sunday when you get to church, I'm speaking to the ladies here in this hypothetical situation, you go up to Rhonda and you ask her how she's doing, and to your surprise, she just breaks down in tears. She says, I have no idea what to do. Philip has had an affair. My life is shattered. I don't know what to do. Rhonda has the proof. There's no question of what Philip has done. But she doesn't know what to do. What do you, as a sister in Christ, do for her at that point? Well, I hope you weep with her, and you hold her, and you comfort her. You pray with her, and you look for any possible practical way that you can help her right there in that time. But what do you do in addition to that? How does Matthew 18 play into that? You learn that that Rhonda has gone to her husband and has confronted him. She has shown him the proof, how she knows this. He has not even denied it. And in fact, he says he believes it's God's will, that God wants him to be happy. And he's been terribly disappointed with his wife, He deserves better. So he has no intention of turning back. What would you do then? I hope that you would, if you're married, you could grab your husband. The two of you would go confront this person, plead with him to turn back in repentance, help him to understand how he is not only breaking his vows with his wife, but his vows to God, and he is destroying his children. Please, Philip, turn around. Repent. That would be a scary thing. None of us would look forward to that conversation. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 18. But don't you want to be a part of a church that would function that way? That if someone did something to you, even something terrible like the situation that I just described, that you knew that you had brothers or sisters that would come around you, not only support you, 
but that would challenge that person who has harmed you. That would stand on your side and try to bring about the kind of reconciliation that only God can bring about in situations like that. I would want a bunch of friends like that if I was in such a terrible situation. But the the flip side of it then is also true, right? Because if you've got a church that's going to come alongside you when you have been sinned against like that, well, then they're also going to come at you when you have sinned against someone else like that. And we should want that. Our flesh doesn't want that, but our spirit should want that. Because if God has called us to be holy, to be like his son, to be more and more like Christ as we grow, we put off the old, we put on the new, we grow in holiness. If that is our goal, if that's what we want, then we know that we need our brothers and sisters in Christ challenging us when they see us walking the wrong way. Flesh doesn't want that. The Spirit of God living inside of us pushes us in that direction. So what if the second stage doesn't work? You've gone, you've confronted Philip. He not only refuses to repent, he celebrates his sin. What do you do? Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And we have to think, this is getting serious, right? Are you crazy? You want to get sued? Are you part of a cult? What is going on here? How could Jesus say this? Next week, we're going to look at the significance of the fact that Jesus even uses the word church here. It's one of only two times in all four of the gospel accounts that Jesus uses the word church. And it is on purpose. But right now, what what would that look like? I mean, if one person can't convince them, if two or three people can't convince them, Jesus is saying, let's all just gang up on him. Out of love for him, to call the sinner back to restoration, go get him. What would that look like? You run into him at Walmart? Hey, how you doing? Beautiful weather? How are the kids? And you change the subject. Please, repent. Come back to the Lord who loves you. Come back to his church. We miss you. You do not have to continue. In this. Now, obviously, it's unlikely that conversation is going to go much farther and he's going to be off in aisle 12 before you've made it very far in that conversation. But it's, it's the idea of multiple people loving him enough to say the hard things and to not gloss over it. So, you know, Hey, have you, have you seen how the wrestling team is doing? They're doing a great job. Well, that doesn't help call him to what he needs most. Jesus is clear here. We involve the church. What would that look like here? Well, we would call a, a special members meeting. Because really, we're, we're talking about members of the church, those who have committed to the church as covenant members. This is not for the, the whole world. We're not like putting it in the newspaper or broadcasting it on the radio or anything like that. So if you have committed to the membership of this church, then, then we're going to call a meeting together and we're going to explain to you what the situation is and send you out on a mission to pull your wayward brother or sister back if you can. Jesus is still pursuing this person. 
And he's enlisting more people in that pursuit. And you might say, what right do we have to tell the church about another person's sin? If you, if you have a kind of individualistic view of Christianity, maybe you think Christianity is just your personal relationship with God, just the vertical part, and you kind of ignore the horizontal part where we're all connected together as a body, and we need each other, and we encourage each other, and we build each other up, then this whole situation may not make sense. It may not compute in your mind. But if we are, as Paul tells us, a body and each member is a part of the body and members together with each other, then this makes more sense. God is working through his body to rescue the sick part of the body. So what right do we have? Well, we have, we have the right because Jesus just gave it to us. But more than that, we have the responsibility because Jesus just commanded us Now, that's really uncomfortable for me as I think about that. This is not just Jesus with a few tips on how to get along with people, how to have a better interpersonal relationship with people. If someone messes up, here's some helpful things that you can do. This is Jesus saying, step one, step two, step three, and you, you need to do these, he's saying to the church. And that holds a very different weight than a few helpful tips or how to get along with folks. Why? Why would we do this? Well, it's the same reason we would do step one, or we would do step two. The same reason we're talking about this at all is because God's desire is for his wayward sheep to be restored to the fold. God wants restoration. He wants reconciliation. He wants sinner to repent. He wants the church to love and pursue those who are wandering. This is about love, this is about grace, and this is mercy. Those who have received the love and grace and mercy from God are to extend it to others, even if it means in this difficult way. So what if that stage doesn't? You've gone one, you've taken some backup, you've... <laughs> You've told it to the church. The church has had some time. They've sent cards and emails and texts and phone calls and run into him at Walmart, and, and he just refuses, refuses to turn. What, what then? Back to 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Gentile and a tax collector. What is Jesus saying here? If you read another translation, instead of Gentile, you may see the word pagan or the, the word heathen. So in the Jewish worldview, you've got two basic categories of people. You've got the Jewish people who are chosen by God. Go all the way back to Abraham for this. Chosen by God, saying, I'm going to build out of you, Abraham, this, this chosen group of people, this representative group. They're going to represent me to the world, and I've chosen your family for that. That's where we get the Jewish nation from. And then you've got everybody else, the Gentile. Probably most, maybe everybody in this room is a Gentile. We're, we're not of Jewish descent. The, the Jewish people, they're on the inside. They're part of the covenant 
family of God. God establishes a covenant, a binding legal agreement between Abraham's offspring and himself. They're inside the covenant. They're the chosen people. They have the protection of God, the blessing of God. God is on their side. And then there's the rest of us in the Old Testament. We're on the outside. We don't have the blessing of God. We don't have the protection of God. We don't have God looking out for us. In fact, we're described as enemies of God because we're not part of that family. And yet we don't have to stay enemies of God. Even in the Old Testament, there are beautiful stories of people who are born outside of the family of God who then convert into Judaism and they're adopted into the family of God. I think of adoption into the family of God as a New Testament thing, but it happened even in the Old Testament. Gentile people converting to Judaism, coming into the family of God. But most most didn't. They were considered outside the covenant family. So when Jesus says to consider someone who refuses to repent as a Gentile, he's saying you, church, are to consider that person as outside of the covenant family. Talk more about what that means next week because that is a heavy thing. There are some serious repercussions there. What we're saying is basically, look, based on what you are doing and your refusal to yield to God and to come to him in repentance, we're going to treat you as an outsider. How would we treat an outsider? We'll get to that in just a moment. Because Jesus brings in another group of people, the tax collectors. And if you know the New Testament, you know the tax collectors were a hated group of people. So you had the Gentiles who were outside of the family of God by birth, but then you had the tax collectors who were born into the family of God and then removed themselves from the family of God by becoming traitors to collect taxes, to collect taxes for the Roman government. Because at the time, the Roman government, the Roman Empire was ruling over Judea and its surrounding areas, and they would employ Jews who were good with money and didn't care if they were hated by everyone to become tax collectors. And everybody hated them. They were taking money from their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. They were giving it to the Roman Empire, pocketing some of it themselves, but they were funding the evil empire that was subjecting them as a nation. They were even using some of that money to fund the worship of false gods, like the the Roman emperor himself said, "I, I am a god and I must be worshiped. And so, Imagine how offensive that was for the Jewish people to work hard, to serve the one true God, and then to have to turn over some of that money to one of their own who is a traitor, and that money is going to be used to build up the religious system that is completely corrupt and the opposite of what they know to be true. These people were hated. They were considered to have literally sold their soul to the devil kicked out of their families, they were kicked out of their religious life, couldn't go to synagogue, couldn't go to the temple. Everybody hated them. Does that mean that Jesus is saying here, if your brother refuses to repent, you must hate him, kick him out of all relationship, make him an ostracized, complete loner? 
That's not what Jesus is saying. And here's where we get to the beauty of the gospel. Let's go back to that Gentile. If Jesus says we're to treat somebody like a Gentile, we should ask, how did Jesus treat the Gentiles? Maybe you remember that story from earlier in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus heals the servant of a Roman centurion soldier. Centurion's a captain over 100 soldiers. He's overseeing a group of soldiers who are holding the Jewish people captive. They were generally hated. They were viewed as, as dogs. But this Roman soldier has a servant whom he loves and is sick and about to die. And amazingly, this Roman soldier humbles himself to ask Jesus for help. Matthew 8, 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came toward him, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, just Jesus is a wandering, like blue-collar, day laborer kind of guy who's going around teaching. And this captain of a hundred Roman soldiers walks up to him and says, Lord. There's a whole lot more of the story here than what we've got, right? Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those following him, Truly, I say to you, I tell you, with no, one, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He's saying, all, all of the Jewish people I've been hanging out with, I have not seen this, this level of faith as I just saw in this evil Roman occupying soldier. Again, to put it in today's framework, I mean, Jesus is hanging out in Ukraine, right? And he says to the Ukrainians, I have not seen such noble, generous, faithful conduct in any of you as I just saw in this Russian soldier. See how shocking that would be in that situation? Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and the west, meaning outside of the world of Judaism, and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the heads of the Jewish nation in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness, into that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about hell there. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now we say, this is a cool story, but if we understand what's going on, how utterly shocking this would be, not only for the people who witnessed it, but then for the people who heard it or read it when Matthew wrote it down for us, this, this is not how it's supposed to be. But Jesus loves Gentiles. Praise God for that. Not only does he love the Jewish people, he loves the Gentile people too. And he, he serves, he blesses, he heals the servant of this centurion. And just to do that, just to, just to have that mercy would have been shocking and scandalous. But then he praises this Roman occupying soldier scandalous would that be? And then he has the audacity to say, look, there are some within the Jewish nation who are lost. 
They're headed for hell. And there are some in the Gentile world that are going to be hanging out with Abraham in heaven. Shocking. But man, I am a benefit of that. As far as I know, I've got no Jewish blood in me, but I am now part of the family of God because Jesus has welcomed me, a Gentile, in. So if we're going to say, how should we treat someone as a Gentile? We have to ask, how did Jesus treat the Gentiles? And, and Jesus treated them with love, and a desire to see them saved and adopted into the family of God. If we're going to say to someone, based on your life and your refusal to repent, we have to treat you as an outsider, that is not simply a condemnation and a judgment we are to love them and try to share the gospel with them and bring them into the family of God the same way anybody does through repentance and faith. So we treat them as someone whom Jesus loves and died for, but who is currently outside the family of God. Well, what about the tax collectors? How should we treat the tax collectors? Well, we've got to ask the same question. How did Jesus treat the tax collectors. Who wrote for us the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew? It was Matthew. What was Matthew's occupation before he was a disciple of Jesus? He was a tax collector. He can't make this stuff up, right? The beauty just starts swirling around now. We're going to see the Gospel so clearly in this. He was a tax collector. He was the traitor. He was the betrayer of his people, and yet Jesus chose him. If you've watched the TV series The Chosen, which I highly recommend, they've got two seasons completely done, third one on the way, then you might have this picture in your mind. This is the actor who portrays Matthew, and he's sitting in his tax collector booth, and he is he's miserable. He's alone. Everybody hates him. His only friend is this dog that has adopted him. And yet, there's this next picture. After Jesus has called Matthew, and I love the way that the Chosen series portrays Jesus' love for his friends. The, the, the smile on the face of Jesus here, the kindness in his eyes as he looks at Matthew. It just all throughout the series, you see portrayed so well the love that Jesus has for his friends. Jesus had called Matthew. This is how it worked. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew himself is writing this. He could have given us all kinds of details about how his day was going and what he was thinking and how he couldn't believe that Jesus was saying this. He just gives us the bare details. Jesus walks up, says, follow me. Matthew gets up, leaves his booth, leaves his job leaves his livelihood, leaves his identity, leaves his future security, and follows Jesus. That's what it means to repent and believe in Jesus. Matthew's walking this way as a tax collector, a traitor against God's people. He turns around 180 degrees. He starts walking with Jesus, trusting in Jesus, not trusting in himself or the Roman government to provide for him. Jesus loved Matthew by calling him to leave his own life, his old life, 
and walk in a new life of faith with Jesus. Jesus didn't say, Matthew, believe in me. Matthew, come follow me. Leave this old life, step into this new life as my disciple. How do we even know that this happened? Or how do we even know that Jesus had the Matthew 18 conversation with his disciples? We know it because Matthew himself wrote it down for us. And I think when when Matthew heard things happening, when he actually heard Jesus say this in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. I'm sure that Matthew must have winced just a little bit when Jesus said that. But then years later, when he's writing this down, I'm sure the tears are flowing with joy and thankfulness as he marvels at the fact that he, a tax collector, was chosen, was called out by Jesus. And when, and when Jesus says, treat him like, like a tax collector, he has to say, how did Jesus treat me? He loved me. He called me out of my old life. He called me into a new life. He gave me freedom. He gave me forgiveness. He gave me grace. He gave me love. What we read as harsh condemnation. Treat him as a Gentile and tax collector. Matthew writes, so aware of the grace that Jesus has shown. That's what church discipline is about. It's about restoration. It's about forgiveness. It's about reconciliation. If you're calling a sinner to repentance and forgiveness, you're doing the work of God. But here's, here's the wonder of all wonders in this. We are the Gentile. We are the tax collector. Literally and spiritually, we're the Gentile, we're the outsiders, we're, we're not part of that chosen family of God, and yet through the grace of God, the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf, he welcomes us through repentance and faith to be adopted into the family of God. How are we to treat Gentiles? How did Jesus treat us? How are we to t- treat tax collectors? We are, we're the tax collectors. We're the traitors. We spent how many years shaking our fists at our Lord saying, you will not rule over me. I am my own master. And yet if Jesus has saved you, he, he's, he's pulled you out of that foolish rebellion. He's adopted you into his family. How do we treat tax collectors? How did Jesus treat us? God, in his loving kindness and his mercy and in his love he pursued us for some of us that felt like a ruthless pursuit boy it was a pursuit out of love if you're a christian today it is only because god pursued you called you turned you away from your sinful self-willed life and he called you to trust fully and only in christ for salvation If you're a Christian today, it's because you were a Gentile and a tax collector, but Jesus loved you and saved you, and I hope that's amazing. It is the grace, it is this grace and this love that motivates us to partner with Jesus to pursue others who are wayward, to not sit on that life-saving stand and watch them 
drown, but to pursue them, to run out into the surf, to rescue them. Maybe today you listen to me talking, you're thinking, I'm pretty sure I'm outside the family of God. I, I don't belong to him. I'm not one of his children. I want you to hear the good news today, that even today you can be adopted into the family of God. That if you come to God humbly, truthfully, and say, God, I have tried to live my own life, my own rules, my own direction. I have been a foolish, rebellious traitor, tax collector. I confess my sinfulness to you. And I ask you, God, to forgive me. And I believe that Jesus took all of my sin, all of my shame upon himself, that he paid the price for my forgiveness. And I want to receive that gift of forgiveness from you, that even today... He can save you and adopt you into his family. You are not as bad a traitor as Matthew was. And yet, just as bad a traitor as Matthew was. You're not as far outside, so far from God as the Gentiles were, and yet you really are as far away from God as the Gentiles. God pursues you. God loves you. Jesus died in your place. And today he can give you new life, adopt you into his family. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray for those who are in this room who, who may be wondering what their status is with you. They are curious about you. They're drawn to you. Maybe they even know a lot of the Bible answers and church answers, and yet they, they feel in their soul that they're, they're not yours. They don't belong to you, that it's, they're still outside. Lord, would you draw them in to your family even now? As we sing this final song with communion, as we reflect on the great love of you, our Heavenly Father, would you convince our wayward, traitorous hearts to trust you more, to turn again and again from our own self-rule and self-determination, self-centered lives. Just to turn from that, turn back to you over and over again in faith and in trust. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you extend to us. That even once we are adopted into your family and we continue to screw up, you are faithful to us. Your loving kindness follows us all of our days. You never leave us, never forsake us, never give up on us. And you're always, as a perfect Heavenly Father, disciplining us, calling us back into alignment with you. So as we, we reflect now, Lord, we prepare to, to celebrate what you did for us by giving up your life 2,000 years ago. Work in our hearts. Draw us to you. In Jesus' name.